0: See. You know, the uh, studio here, the interview booth, has become some sort of storage space due to an art show being here this past weekend. There's now a mic stand across from me I don't even recognize. Do you recognize this mic stand, uh,
1: Sebastian? Uh, it's the you... first time I see it.
0: Uh, <laughs> We've seen this one before. Maybe it's bugged. <laughs> maybe it is. And uh, maybe you'd like this one better than the one that you're using. We should uh, do a little compare and contrast. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after. During the week at ThisIsHell.com, the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell, airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho, twice every week on Lumpin' Radio at lumpin'radio.com, thrice weekly on the UK based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. And our most recent affiliate is CKUW FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station at the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or community radio station, email us at chuck at com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. So like most U.S. history we were taught during our K-12 through 12 schooling, and sometimes even beyond that education, there are glaring gaps in what we learned. For instance, What were you taught about the history of Texas? Because even after getting an undergraduate degree in history, I never learned a damn thing about Texas other than what movies and other propaganda I've consumed regarding the Lone Star State have told me. Sure, I've kept learning about U.S. history by speaking with past guests like the historian who will be joining us in a few minutes, but there's apparently a lot I do not know about the United States and its formative years, and how Texas not only had a profound and lasting influence on the early years of the United States, but also why that single state has had such a huge impact on the nation's development as a whole, and often not in good ways. Even the so-called Founding Fathers and the framers of the Constitution were aware that Texas was not only a threat of to freedom and democracy as an independent republic but would also be a threat to freedom and democracy if it were ever to become a state which it has and it currently is a threat politically to the nation entirely. We'll find out how Texas threatened freedom and why it remains a threat to democracy in a few minutes when we'll have the return of historian Gerald Horn, author of the new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn is Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston and author of more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His research has addressed issues of racism in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, war, and the film industry. Gerald has appeared on This Is Hell annually since 2018. On his most recent appearance last year, we talked with him about his then-just-released book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the political economy of boxing Gerald's book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism And Capitalism in the Long 16th Century Made our 2020 list of favorite books Featured here on This Is Hell As decided by our listeners As did his 2019 work White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of, South, uh, of Southern Africa From Rhodes to Mandela as well as his 2018 book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in the 17th Century, North America, and the Caribbean. You can hear all of those interviews, and I suggest you do. Even if you've heard it before, go back and listen to them again by going to thisishell.com and searching on HORN. That's H-O-R-N-E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz producing is Sebastian Vuppert. Sebastian how was your weekend? Did you have fun at the party?
1: Oh yeah, the party was great. It was—it's always interesting meeting um, like prior iterations of me, <laughs> um, earlier producers on the show. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and just uh, getting to know like more of the people who make up the sort of like collective background noise of uh, what what's going on here. Uh, who who are hanging out here? Who will make up? large parts of the audience and or audience adjacent (laughs) I I guess
0: the freakdom that is somehow within the seven steps of some sort of contact here yeah yeah
1: yeah. there must be a nest somewhere
0: there must be somewhere my weekend was awesome except for
1: the fear that I was in the midst of getting COVID. But other than that, I, I had a really oh, great time. N- now you can probably soon also be in the midst of the fear of getting either monkeypox or the Marburg virus. Uh, if you've not heard of that, there is uh, currently a Marburg virus outbreak in Ghana. If you don't know what the Marburg virus is, it is a virus that is named after one of the whitest places on Earth, uh, Marburg, Germany, and it is uh, an evil cousin. Like, it's seriously an evil cousin of Ebola, and uh, uh, it's named after Marburg because in the 80s, suddenly a couple of bioengineers started melting inside out in the city of Marburg, and they were like, okay, what's going on here, and eventually found out that the lab monkeys they were experimenting on slash with were hosts to a hemorrhagic fever. Oh, sweet. So we got that to look forward
0: to as well. So I came over here for This Is Art, the This Is Hell-sponsored art show that's uh, taking place, uh, that was taking place just outside of our studio doors and continues to take place throughout... uh, all of August and into September As the show is still open to uh, During some gallery hours That will be announced in the very near future So that art show is taking place outside our, Just outside our studio doors In the art gallery known as Second Story Studios The opening of the show Coincided with the 50th anniversary of Carrie's Lounge The bar downstairs from where I'm speaking right now And I saw a ton of new friends and old Some uh, people who I have not seen Since the beginning of the pandemic and some I had not seen for far longer than that. The art is good and disturbing, so disturbingly good, I guess. Uh, The music was fantastic, the food was delicious, but the best thing about the party was what makes every party, every This Is Hell party, every This Is Hell adjacent party a success, and that is the conversations I had and the new friends I made. So thanks to everyone who came out, thanks to Carrie's Lounge, and thanks to all the artists who showed their work. Don't forget the closing of This Is Art will happen during the this is how listener appreciation and anniversary party happening on summer's last Saturday Saturday September 17th here at Second Story Studios and Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood despite the fact that we will be taking rapid tests at the earliest possible moment my uncommon law and wife and I uh, so they can uh, so we can detect if the virus uh, was uh, we got infected by it, to determine if, if we are actually positive with covid But as the effectiveness of those tests don't really work until five days after any possible contact, that testing won't be happening until Thursday night. So I got that going for me. But aside from the possibility that COVID may ruin our upcoming vacation over the next couple of weeks, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell?
1: This week's question from Hell, inspired by the January 6th hearings and uh, Josh Hawley running away from the consequences (laughs) of his actions is, The consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? The consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from?
0: The funniest uh, thing I saw about that was a sports website said, did, I had no idea Josh Hawley ran a 40 in 7.2 seconds because that was a very slow 40 that he ran. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Gerald on the frightening history of the United States. Again, the question from hell is the, uh, the consequences of which questionable action are you running that you took are you running away from? The consequences of what questionable action you took are you running away from? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell will receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the coffee mug, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the winter hat, the trucker's cap, and the This Is Hell guide to the 21st 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews heard here on This Is Hell during this century. You can see all of our merchandise at thisishell.com. When you click on support, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. Should I read it in, in whalish? <laughs> no, no, don't do that. Please don't do that.
1: <laughs> this week's hangover cure is krill oil. Um if you for if you all if you end up being hammered as a blue whale. Uh the Daily Mail ran a story headlined. Quote, Can I can a one-pound fish supplement? <coughs> Excuse me. Let me let me get into the into the right voice here. Can a one one-pound fish supplement help with the hangover? <laughs> a hangover? Study finds krill oil found in most high street health shops can uh, cure. Dreaded next day nausea and thirst. Yeah, a health reporter for Mail Online, Joe Eli, writes, and I'm not doing the accent now, downing some krill oil before boozing could help you beat a hangover, a study suggests. Korean scientists found people who took a 1,000 milligram dose of krill oil before drinking the equivalent of four pints of beer reported significantly lower levels of dehydration and nausea. Signs of a hangover compared to those who took a placebo. Uh, they believe the antioxidant-rich properties of krill oil, which can be bought in many high street health shops, is behind its hangover-curing powers. Health reporter Eline explains: antioxidants are chemical compounds found in variety in a variety of foods, which counteract molecules called free radicals. Again, those free radicals that yes. damage DNA, cell membranes, and other DNA, cell membranes, and other parts of cells, like those found in alcohol. Uh, They are found in a variety of foods and have a number of claimed health benefits, with one recent study published in May finding eating a small bowl of (laughs) antioxidant-rich cranberries uh, a day could improve memory and ward off dementia. Eli adds, Krill oil, also rich in omega-3 fats, is made from tiny shrimp-like animals that live in the ocean. Uh, it is thought to work by interrupting how alcohol is broken down in the body, stopping it from producing... Acetylide? Acet- uh, that stuff. Acetyl- acetaldehyde is the byproduct scientists theorize may is par- partly responsible for for the telltale hangover symptoms that makes this week's hangover cure krill oil supplements on the other hand if you want to improve your memory and ward of dementia have a small bowl of cranberries
0: but that's not what we try to cure here on this is hell coming up a history of texas and how it informs u.s fascism we'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is the consequences of which questionable questionable I'm going to have trouble with that I guess the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? And a new episode of Sub Soapbox, when producer Sebastian Whooper steps back into and through history to provide historical context to some of today's most pressing issues. Your eyewitness to grief. This is Hell, as our guest argues in his new book. You may be missing a huge part of why fascism has always had an influence on the United States without knowing the history of Texas, both as a republic and then a later state, here to help us have a better understanding of both Texas and. U.S. Fascism Returning to This is Hell, is historian Gerald Horn, author of The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Gerald, welcome back to This is Hell. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great Having you on the show I cannot tell you How much our listeners Appreciate you being on the show And uh, last year The last time we had you on We were talking about Your book On the economy of boxing And our producer At the time uh, Was a boxer himself He really enjoyed your book And I gave him a copy So thank you again For a completely Different topic That you would normally Be writing about But it, that was that's really A fantastic book And during the show Our uh, show I was at this weekend So many people Were asking about you And especially that book I was really surprised at how many people really enjoyed that book so thank you again for being a guest on our show so many times my pleasure So you write, in 1859, Texas was a bleeding sore, or so thought Robert Neighbors, a so-called Indian agent, toiling on Washington's behalf. There was a clique led by John Baylor, soon to bathe in infamy during the forthcoming Civil War for demanding extermination of indigenous, who uh, sought to accelerate the deadly process. This clique formed an an organized conspiracy against the Indian policy of the federal government, which emphasized a reserve or reservation in the Lone Star State. No, insisted these opponents Indigenous should be simply liquidated To demonstrate their utter seriousness And in anticipation of the Civil War They launched frequent attacks On the United States military Bloodthirstiness Which said neighbors Exceeds all the brutality attributed to the wild Comanches The ultimate target So uh, Gerald, how open and explicit was this call for indigenous by whites in uh, for this, uh, you know, this an indigenous genocide by whites in Texas? How open and public was this? Was this something that was a, a common narrative at the time?
2: Well, absolutely, it was. <laughs> they didn't uh, make any bones about their bloodthirstiness. And in fact, uh, you can track my footnotes, which will bring you to original sources. For example, there was a newspaper published in Texas called, quote, The White Man, unquote. I found copies of it at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, about 60 miles west of Boston. So you may want to contact them and get uh, copies of those articles. But it reveals a basic fissure, a basic split, in the settler class. On the one hand, you had settlers such as Robert Neighbors and the U.S. federal government who thought that Indians should be placed on reservations, and ultimately that was the policy that prevailed, but it only prevailed after the settlers on the other side of the ledger who wanted uh, liquidation, extermination, had done their handiwork. And I would also suggest that this was one of the many reasons for the outbreak of the US Civil War in 1861. Uh, That is to say that it was not only a war about slavery, which I think is now the prevailing opinion, although we know that there is pushback against that idea in classrooms, not least in Texas. But another reason for the outbreak of the US Civil War was that many settlers, not least in Texas, felt that Washington, the federal government, was not up to snuff when it came to taking the land of the Native Americans. And they thought that a state like Texas would be better off either A, in a new country, the so-called Confederate States of America, or B, resuming its independence, which was the case from its breakaway from Mexico in 1836 up until it joining the Union in 1845, or C, there was this other influential body of thought in in Texas, which felt that since the indigenous population oftentimes used Mexico as a rear base by which Texas could be attacked, that Texas should swallow all of Mexico, not just Texas, not just California, which happened 1846 to 1848, but should swallow all of Mexico, all of Central America, uh, oust the Spanish from slave-owning Cuba, uh, go all the way to the northern coast of South America. This this group was called the Knights of the Golden Circle, uh, which was very influential among settlers in Texas, And they did not prevail, fortunately. Those who prevailed were those who thought that Texas would be better off joining the Confederate States of America. But alas, as we all know, the Confederate States of America was defeated in the U.S. Civil War in 1865. And the Texas enslavers lost their their most valuable investment. Speaking of the bodies of enslaved Africans, it's one of the largest Uncompensated seizures of private property in the history of the world, billions of dollars in slave property liquidated without compensation. And that helps to explain why the Texas former enslavers were so furious, why they helped to found one of the more formidable chapters of the terrorist Ku Klux Klan, why lynching of the formerly enslaved was so murderous uh, in the state of Texas and why one of the most rigid forms of Jim Crow or US apartheid was established post 1865 in the state of Texas.
0: You mentioned uh, Texans, Texas's uh, plans for a kind of imperialism, where they would uh, take over uh, Mexico. How much did those kind of that kind of imperial ambitions reflect the Im- imperial ambitions of the United States? A lot of people don't view the United States as being an imperial country until imperial nation until 1898, but it's arguable that uh, the United States, even before it was the United States, was a very imperial nation or uh, federation or whatever you wanted to called at the time. So how much does that imperialism of Texas reflect the imperialism of the greater United States at that time? How much did Texas, even when it was a republic, still reflect what the United States was at that time?
2: Well, I think that if you see indigenous nations as legitimate political bodies, you could make an argument clearly that from its inception, The United States itself, by overthrowing these indigenous polities, was embarking upon an imperialist path that reaches a crescendo in the 1890s with the overthrow of the independent state that was Hawaii, which then becomes the 50th and presumed final state of the United States in 1959, with the ouster of the tottering Spanish empire from the Philippines in the 1890s and from Cuba and Puerto Rico in the 1890s. So the argument that also could be made is that when Texas joined the United States, it added jet fuel to this imperial project because after Texas joins the United States in 1845, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the United States then wages a war against Mexico, a seizing not only California, but a good deal of what is now the US Southwest, California now being the most populous state in the United States of America, by some measures, the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. And so Texas was at the vanguard of uh, that particular war. And you should realize that another impetus for the US Civil War, in addition to the perceived weakness of Washington concerning the ouster of the indigenous, was Texas was also dissatisfied with Washington's policy towards Mexico because before slavery was abolished, Texas had a problem unique to slave owning states. If you look at Florida, there is water separating Bahamas from Florida. That complicates the ability of the enslaved uh, to reach what was free soil beginning with the 1830s with British, the British abolishing slavery in their colony that was Bahamas. Or if you look at Bermuda due east of the Carolinas, also British controlled territory, The enslaved property had difficulty in swimming to the Bermuda. But Mexico was different. You could stroll from Texas into Mexico. It's estimated that thousands and thousands and thousands of enslaved Africans did so. A capital loss on the part of Texas enslavers that they considered to be catastrophic. They felt that Washington was laggard in terms of putting pressure on Mexico to return this enslaved property. Keep in mind that Mexico had abolished slavery circa 1829 under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. And that abolitionist decree was the impetus for slave owners, such as Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston, to revolt, against Mexican rule in Texas or Texas and establishing the Republic of Texas, an independent country, and then affixing their names to two key cities, Austin, Texas and Houston, Texas, from where I'm now speaking. And it was the feeling in Texas that Washington should have uh, exemplified or should have executed a more muscular policy towards Mexico when it came to the question of returning enslaved property, and since they felt that Washington was not up to the task, they decided to bolt from Washington and throw in their lot with the so-called Confederate States of America, but as noted, they wound up losing that most valuable of investments, enslaved Africans. You were
0: mentioning a little bit ago about
2: uh, the kind of history that
0: is taught in Texas classrooms when it relates to the Civil War. And when you're writing about uh, Texas proclaiming genocide against the indigenous and against African Americans, you write that even uh, mainstream tech Texas historian felt compelled to acknowledge that Washington never formally adopted the policy of massacre authorized by Texas, where it was permissible to kill all males 12 years and older by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century. The Texas Rangers were the death squad, yet there's a baseball team named after them. (laughs) So how aware is the public in Texas of the Rangers Death Squad past and past is this is this is the anti-critical race theory the completely misle- misleadingly named campaign, but is the anti-critical race theory campaign about not teaching accurate Texas history in Texas schools?
2: Well, you, God, excuse me for, for twisting my tongue, but I was just rushing to say absolutely clearly. In fact, just a few weeks ago there was a debate at in educational policy circles in Texas as to whether or not to call the African slave trade the process of involuntary relocation, a euphemism by definition. And there have been previous debates about whether or not talking about slavery is much too difficult for little Johnny and little Jennifer to absorb, and that of not only led to this uh, rather hysterical and demagogic campaign against so-called critical race theory, which uh, many of the legislators and policymakers do not know how to define, but as well, it led to a real backlash against the New York Times 1619 project, uh, which you may recall came out in 2019, uh, spearheaded by now university professor Nicole Hannah-Jones, which said that the founding era or the founding of U.S. democracy should be traced back to the arrival of Black people, not necessarily to 1776, because in actually uh, playing upon some themes that are in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, uh, she and the Times crew were arguing that 1776 uh, basically, was a revolt against incipient abolitionism in London, and also against the idea, as reflected in the Royal Proclamation of 1762, 1763, that London was expressing displeasure at continuing to fight Native Americans, seizing their land and turning it over to real estate speculators, like real estate speculator number one, George Washington. And so these are very difficult ideas for many in Texas, not only Texas, but many across the nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific to comprehend or absorb. And they are not interested necessarily in in having a discussion or a debate about these issues. They're interested in shutting down discussion or, or debate. And that leads to the subtitle of my book, The Roots of U.S. Fascism. And you point
0: out that with the slaveholders' land grab in Texas, uh, reflexively, detractors thought this should be counterveiled by snatching Canada, the prospect of which only propelled further antagonism between London and Washington. Edward Everett Hale, in 1845, posed the query that is yet to be answered er, definitively, how to conquer Texas before Texas conquers us. So throughout its history, even leading up to today, Has the goal of Texas's political leaders been, to some extent, the conquering of the United States to make all of the U.S. more like, if not dominated by uh, Texas? Because that's a frightening consideration when we think of Texas politics, policies, and its leadership today.
2: It certainly is. And as a resident of Texas, I would not wish Texas upon any state, least of all uh, Illinois, least of all California, least of all New York State. But keep in mind that when Texas comes into existence as an independent state in 1836, the idea of the leaders of that Republic was to challenge the United States of America, particularly to challenge the United States of America in concert with foreign powers, particularly France, which was a kind of mentor of independent Texas. Texas had the idea that it should be in the vanguard further denuding Mexico by winning the rush to the Pacific, beating the United States and seizing California, which would then be a beachhead in terms of independent Texas, then strengthening itself against the United States of America, and then extending its remit into the Pacific by taking Hawaii before the United States does in the 1890s, and then making its way to the a dreamily lucrative market that was China, and that is China, and that was and is India. So what happens, of course, is that Texas could not stand the pressure from worldwide abolitionism. Not only abolitionism in Mexico, and to repeat, Texas had a unique problem in having having, a, having an abolitionist nation on their doorstep. Speaking of Mexico, Florida did not have this issue, nor did Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, the Carolinas, Virginia, et cetera. Not only an abolitionist nation, but an abolitionist nation whose closest comrade, perhaps, was Revolutionary Haiti. Revolutionary Haiti, you may recall, 1791 to 1804 with the Haitian Revolution, a successful revolt of the enslaved, a successful revolt of unpaid workers, overthrows slavery, sets up an independent nation that then allies with abolitionists in London, and that combination finds friendship with Mexico. That is one of the reasons why Texas crawled into the Union in 1845, because it could not withstand the pressure from worldwide abolitionists, particularly abolitionist London. However, just as a footnote, uh, keep in mind that when Congress voted to accept Texas as a state, there probably should have been a vote of a supermajority, but it was only a simple majority. And that may become relevant as soon as next year, because at the Republican Party convention in Houston just a few days ago, the party voted to put a referendum before the voters of Texas for Texas to secede, once again, uh, setting up an independent country. Now I know there are probably those in your audience will say, I hope they win. Good riddance to bad rubbish, but not so fast. Number one, I think that Texas would then reclaim its longtime ambition of challenging the United States, it probably would forge an alliance with reactionaries in the hemisphere. Probably its first embassy would be opened in Paraguay. And if Bolsonaro, the Trump of the tropics, wins in the Brazilian elections, the second embassy would be open there after October 2022 when you have the Brazilian elections. And then, uh, speaking personally, Texas has the largest Black population in the United States of America because of its energetic uh, ambitions with regard to enslaving Africans. And as a Black person living in Texas, with Texas perhaps also being on the cusp of fascism, I shudder to think of what would befall the Black population of Texas if Texas becomes independent. And like an oil spill or a virus, I don't think you would be able to keep that from spreading to the so-called lower 48. That is to say, as far as Illinois, New York, or California.
0: You mentioned that Texas has the largest African-American population of any state in the United States, but still that proportion of African-Americans in Texas only constitutes a little under 12% of the overall population. Is that enough to influence what you call Texas's evolution, or by extension, the evolution of the United States as a whole?
2: Well, if you mean by that, if the Black population by itself (laughs) could forestall uh, Texas becoming more muscular in this reactionary politics, up to and including fascism, the answer is no. The Black population, uh, the Black population was not able by itself to overthrow uh, slavery in Texas, it needed the help of the US military, not to mention diplomatic assistance from Haiti and Britain. Uh, it was the Black population was not sufficient to overthrow US Jim Crow in the 20th century, that is to say, US apartheid. It needed the help of people outside of Texas and outside of the United States as well. And so that's one of my worries right now, because uh, since the erosion of Jim Crow, beginning with the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954, you've seen the Black leadership uh, have oftentimes broken their ties with forces in the international community, which has been our saving grace uh, in recent centuries. And it makes me quite nervous and anxious about uh, what is to come in the 21st century.
0: We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn Who returns to our program to talk about his new book The Counter-Revolution of 1836 Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism You write that ultimately capital flight In the form of enslaved Africans Scurried to Mexico in the thousands And says scholar James David Nichols Quote in a very real sense African-American runaways from slavery Began driving Mexico and Anglo-Texans Toward a conflict And you add Texas and Dixie versus a Washington thought to be suspect, too. In some ways, the U.S. victorious war of aggression over Mexico is a catastrophic success for Washington, reanimating the sectional divide over slavery in the territories, especially in California, where Texans wielded early influence, leading to the unsatisfying compromise of 1850, a capitulation to enslavers, in essence, which further strained sectionalism to the point of rupture about a decade later. So to you, what explains this capitulation? And did the U.S.— Did it even have a choice? Because you also add that propelling the cycle of violence was not only the racism that generated land grabs and the desire for enslaved labor, it was also the lack of confidence in the U.S. itself, as exemplified by the flight beyond then-U.S. borders by the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, the anti-Republican animus in Canada backed by their uh, potent London allies, slave revolts, the continuing uprisings of Comanches and their allies— So did U.S. capitulation with slavers and slave states reflect the lack of faith in the stability or sustainability of the United States? Is that why the U.S. capitulated to Texans' slavers?
2: Well, keep in mind that slavery was not just an issue of Dixie. Uh, That is to say, you had uh, slave ships, uh, ships to transport the enslaved. Uh, from uh, Africa to North America that oftentimes were built in Maine or built in Maryland. You had uh, investments in cotton, which was a major commodity in Texas. Those investments uh, sprung oftentimes from New York City. And that helps to explain why during the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, uh, Dixie had quite a stronghold in New York City, of all places. That helps to explain the uh, so-called anti-draft riots, which was an anti-Black pogrom in Manhattan circa 1863, oftentimes spearheaded, I'm afraid to say, by uh, Irish Americans who felt that they would be conscripted to join the Union Army in order to fight to free Black people. Uh, That's something they wanted no part of. In fact, uh, you can still find an excerpt from the movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Gangs of New York. You can find gratis online that is a graphic depiction of that pogrom against uh, black people in uh, lower Manhattan. So Washington was not as strong as it might have appeared to be. And then there was quite a bit of sympathy uh, outside of Texas to the, quote, problem, unquote, that Texans faced in confronting the Comanches because the Comanches were probably the most militant and fearsome fighting force of the indigenous population, uh, perhaps surpassing the metal of the Lakota or the Sioux uh, due north in the Dakotas. And they were also accompanied in that category, by the Apaches, uh, who were on the western border of Texas, bleeding into New Mexico. And oftentimes, these indigenous were joined by a unique indigenous force, uh, that is to say the CADO, C-A-D-D-O, who had an interlocking directorate uh, with Black people. And all of these indigenous groupings oftentimes found sanctuary. Uh, south of the border in Mexico, which they could then once again stroll across the border to (laughs) attack the settlers and stroll back to sanctuary in New Mexico. And that issue, there were many in the United States who were sympathetic with the settlers with regard to confronting that issue. And then you mentioned in in passing uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Now, given the fact that the Mormons, as we call them today, are considered a bulwark of conservatism and conservative values in the GOP and the Republican Party in particular, it may come as a surprise to many in your audience that that was not the case in the 1850s, particularly 1857, when there was a virtual war uh, between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the U.S. government. Now this has impact because with the U.S. military of uh, fighting the Church of Latter-day Saints in Utah, northwest of Texas that was that, that meant fewer U.S troops uh, who could assist the Texas settlers in terms of combating the Native Americans uh, and rebellious Africans. And so in that context, as your quotation suggested, the war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848, with the United States walking away with California and Arizona and Mexico and a good deal of of the U.S. Southwest was a catastrophic success because what that meant was that the folks in the slave owning territory said, aha, uh, this is more room to expand slavery. And you had folks ultimately represented by U.S. President Abraham Lincoln, who at least in the early stages, were not necessarily opposed to slavery, but they were opposed to the expansion of slavery. And the enslavers, perhaps understandably, because of the aforementioned factors, they overestimated their strength within the U.S. Union. They overestimated the sympathy that they would enjoy within the U.S. Union. And they decided to go for it all and have a rebellion to not only perpetuate slavery forevermore, but overthrow the Lincoln government, (laughs) Uh, 1861, 1865. And of course they failed, wound up losing all, all meaning their most valuable property, enslaved Africans, which which then uh, pitched them into this this morass of terrorism as embodied in the Ku Klux Klan, as they sought to exact revenge against their former property because as noted the seizure of property that is to say the liquidation of the financial interests in africans was the largest uncompensated expropriation of private property one of the largest in world history certainly one of the largest uh, in the history of north america and it led to this terrorism, and ultimately led to this unsustainable system of Jim Crow, whereby the enslavers sought to wall off the Black population from the rest of the United States. That is to say, if there was a Black witness in court, you had to swear in on a different Bible. If your pet died, they had to be buried in a segregated cemetery. In some factories, if there were Black workers there, you had to look, you couldn't look out of the same window as those who were non-Black. And that system was ultimately not only ludicrous, but unsustainable and ultimately fell victim uh, in the 1950s to forces of modernization.
0: You also point out that as Jefferson Davis struggled to reach Texas, the Confederate president struggled to reach Texas in 1865 for the rebels last stand in conjunction with French-backed Mexico, Major General Gordon Granger approached Galveston, Texas with a Union force thought to be comprised of upwards of 75% Negro troops. The composition of this force made sense not only because, as the Spanish had discovered decades earlier, these troops were more determined than most to fight, a quality that was desperately required in light of the depth of the challenge. But as well, they were ideal to vouchsafe the order issued on June 19th, reiterating the legality of abolition or what became to be known as Juneteenth. For Davis and his fellow Desperados, they thought that they could rally the erstwhile lost cause from their new residence in Mexico, then retake Texas and the Southwest, and as one student bluntly put it, they could launch raids and continue to kill Yankees. Jefferson Davis's loose plan when he fled, or alternatively, akin to Texas, uh, Texan slaveholder Frank McMullen, one could flee all the way to Brazil and form New Texas in a slaveholding empire that could challenge Washington diplomatically, perhaps even militarily, if the Union forces had failed on Juneteenth. Would the Civil War then have continued? Was the war not over at the signing of the Treaty of Appomattox, but at the Juneteenth Battle in Galveston?
2: Well, I would say that Appomattox, April 1865 in Virginia, when General Robert E. Lee turns over his sword to the Union military, that many in Texas in particular saw that at most as a pause before reloading. June 19th, 1865, when General Granger shows up in Galveston, Texas, that uh, they also saw that as a pause before reloading, because as your comments suggested, the idea was that since France, one of Texas's closest comrades, had seized on United States preoccupation with civil war, in the 1860s to take over Mexico. That's the origins of the Mexican-American holiday of today, Cinco de Mayo, which marks a significant victory of Mexican forces over the French occupiers circa 1862. And so the idea was that not only would Texas enslavers flee into French-occupied Mexico with their valuable property in in tow, the Mexican puppet emperor, Maximilian, would reverse the abolitionist decree of a few decades earlier that had led to Texas secession from Mexico in 1836 under Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston et al., and that uh, Mexico could then become a rear base by which not only could slavery continue, but then the war could continue <laughs> against the U.S. government. Uh, with the backing of France. But what happens is that they did not necessarily get buy-in from the Mexican population with regard to the scheme. And by June 19, 1867, the Mexican population had risen up and overthrown the Maximilian French puppet dictatorship, and June 19th, 1867, I argue, brings us closer to real abolition, because keep in mind that even after June 19th, 1867, there were scattered cases of enslavement of Africans continuing. Indeed, even today in 2022, uh, slavery to a lesser degree exists, in the United States It's oftentimes Uh, passes under the euphemism of quote, wage theft, unquote, uh, whereby uh, people work and don't get paid. And you've seen stories, I'm sure, about these sweatshops in Southern California, mostly featuring uh, Asian Latino workers where the workers are not only not paid, but oftentimes not allowed to leave the premises, which is this kind of replica of the plantations that produce slavery and sugar and other commodities. Now they're producing uh, clothes, for example, fast fashion, as it's oftentimes called in the United States today. So this question of Texas and the question that you mentioned a moment or two ago, whether or not uh, the United States could conquer Texas or Texas could conquer the United States, it's still alive and open question as represented not only by this demagogy about critical race theory, about Texas's demagogy concerning open carry of weapons and this rather uh, ridiculous interpretation of the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution with regard to circumscribing of women's reproductive freedom, where Texas has been in in the vanguard even before the, the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi. So, uh, I would urge and encourage your audience to pay careful and close attention to Texas because I'm afraid to say where Texas is right now may be where the rest of the country is headed.
0: That's the most frightening part of, uh, I shouldn't say that, that is one of the many frightening things that you bring up in your book. You write that of of the post-Civil War era, what seemed to be a rosy dawn of freedom was swiftly drowned in death as Texas solidified its already extant role as the continental epicenter. Of counter between 1865 and 1868 as the reborn nation was struggling to solidify a new birth of freedom Texas led the nation in total number of homicides historian Fawn Brody in her study of abolitionist hero Thaddeus Stevens cl- concluded morosely that at that point Texas Negroes were off were worse off in that state than any other did life become worse for African Americans in Texas after slavery was abolished after the war, the Civil War was over and slavery was eventually abolished and the war finally ended on Juneteenth.
2: Well, I can't say that black people were worse off post 1865, but I can say that it was a different kind of hell. In fact, you may be familiar with this aphorism coming out of Texas post 1865 a union union general was quoted for the proposition that if he owned hell in Texas, he'd live in hell and rent out Texas. Now, was Texas worse than hell? Well, certainly it was a living hell uh, for the indigenous population and the black population. And sadly enough, I'm afraid to say that the Black population would have benefited from better leadership, because what happens during this inglorious period following the U.S. Civil War is that you have many Black soldiers who were felt indebted to the United States government, and so they become the spearhead in wars against Native Americans, the Buffalo Soldiers, oftentimes Uh, sung by Bob Marley of Jamaica and those who followed him. And they were really, I I, I hesitate to call it a death squad, but certainly the kind of roughhouse tactics that they used against Native Americans is one of the most despicable chapters in, in, in Black history. And what's even worse is that it does not do them any favors. What I mean is, At the same time that the Buffalo soldiers were routing the indigenous population in West Texas, the black population, which is heavily centered in East Texas was being routed in turn by the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist forces. I mean, and being routed, uh, there's one episode that I described, which is not atypical, where a black man is shot through the head upon entering a store and not removing his hat. And so because of this apparent violation of contemporary etiquette, he pays with his life. And that bespeaks uh, the uh, worthlessness in a sense of black life at that time. And and keep in mind as well, that there's another story that needs to be told uh, with regard to what's happening in that part of the United States at that moment. Uh, Recall that Indian territory, what is now Oklahoma, was established on the northern border of Texas. Uh, That is to say, it was an attempt by the United States to tie down Texas's ambitions to challenge the United States by putting disgruntled indigenous people who had been ousted from their homeland in Georgia, speaking of the Cherokees and also speaking of the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Seminoles all dumped into Indian territory, and many of them, particularly the Cherokees, have emulated the settlers by becoming enslavers of Africans. And so what happens is that many of the Cherokees, in particular, they fight with the Confederacy and thereby have to pay a heavier price than most enslavers by giving up both land and also uh, giving up the land to the Black population as well, which leads, at least for a brief moment, to a kind of enrichment of the Black population. However, you may also recall what happens in 1921 with the Tulsa Massacre, where one of the richest Black communities in the United States in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is subjected to a massacre by settlers who are envious of their wealth coming out of this, this uh, deal with the Native Americans. And they wound up losing everything and wound up being driven further into poverty. Many of them fleeing to the four corners of North America. And so it's understandable why you would ask this question of whether or not uh, many Black people might have been worse off uh, with the abolition of slavery. But all things considered, I'd have to say, despite the Tulsa massacre, despite lynchings, despite being murdered for mundane violations of social etiquette, I'd have to answer no to that question
0: and you also point out that indian territory as in quotes reflected the dialectic of radical reform versus reaction in a manner as profound as its southern neighbor texas we're talking about oklahoma being the indian territory one analyst has observed that what became oklahoma at that juncture had more bandits horse thieves counterfeiters whiskey peddlers and train robbers per square mile than any other place in the united states it wasn't uncommon for travelers to disappear and never be heard from again at the same time black deputy marshals in the Indian Territory had the authority to arrest whites and defend their lives in doing so they had the authority to kill whites if the situation called for it which was unique for the United States at the time nevertheless the allies of the Negro liquidated uh, Indian Territory then by 1907 established the state of Oklahoma whose initial bills imposed Jim Crow the sooner state has been described as resembling a meat cleaver lurking above Texas its blade dripping with the blood of the Red River, but the impact threat, uh, implicit threat of the foregoing rise of Negroes tended to dissipate after Indian Territory was largely dissolved. So why was this essentially lawless area the perfect site for the implementation of Jim Crow?
2: Well, first of all, keep in mind that Indian Territory was one of the few territories under Washington's jurisdiction, ostensibly, that was occupied in no small measure by Confederate forces. The last Confederate military officer to surrender officially in June 1865 was Stan Wattie, W-A-T-I-E, uh, who was a Cherokee leader. And so what happens is that There was probably more dislocation in Indian territory following the end of the Civil War than any other part of the United States of America, perhaps even more so than in Texas, uh, because of this bitter contestation between A, the Confederates and the Federals, and B, the contestation between the indigenous. And the settlements. So, what happens as in Indian territory is that the indigenous are still still have jurisdiction and a certain amount of sovereignty in Indian territory. You might have seen that uh, there was a recent case in the U.S. Supreme Court that sought to circumscribe uh, Indian sovereignty. This is in 2022, and certainly there was even more Indian sovereignty in uh, 1872, and as a result, you saw that in the sovereign Indian lands, uh, they were more willing, particularly, I I must say, the non-Cherokee and the non-Choctaw, because the Cherokee and Choctaw were the major slave owners, to even have Black American uh, law enforcement officers who could then enforce the law against settlers or against others. But alas, uh, this was seen as unsustainable (laughs) by many in Texas. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the University of Oklahoma and their mascot is the Sooners. And what that refers to, and you can go online and see film of this, in 1889, or recreations, I should say, in 1889, Indian territory is opened up for settlement, and the Sooners were the European settlers who jumped the queue, who jumped the line, and rushed to establish their grub state before the starting gun was sounded. And then that led inevitably to Oklahoma joining the United States in 1907, and the settlers sought to reverse what they saw was this dangerous social experiment for example, of Black law enforcement officers arresting, perhaps even killing Euro-American settlers, which is one of the reasons why one of the first decrees in, in, uh, in um, the state of Oklahoma uh, was uh, decrees of mandating uh, Jim Crow. And uh, even today, as you know, uh, Oklahoma is still competing with Texas, not only on the football gridiron, but also in terms of Who can be most aggressive in circumscribing women's reproductive freedom, for example? Who could be most aggressive in terms of enforcing uh, anti-critical race theory demagogy, for example? Who could be most aggressive in terms of loosening gun safety laws so that you can stroll into your Starbucks with an A15 assault weapon? Uh, This is the sad state of affairs in this part of the United States And to repeat, people should pay close and careful attention because our nightmare today in the Southwest might be your nightmare tomorrow.
0: One last question for you, Gerald, although I could talk to you for another two or three hours about your book because this really is an incredible book. One last question for you. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn about his newest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of US the roots of US fascism and one one thing i just want to mention real quick is that this is the fifth consecutive year that Gerald has appeared on our show and you can find all of our interviews with him and you should go back and listen to every one of them at our website thisishell.com, when you search on his last name horn and that's h o r n e so you point out how uh, Roy Cullen of Houston was recognized as probably the richest man in the world. His mother had moved from South Carolina to Texas after the family's plantation was immolated. His grandfather fought in the secession war against uh, Mexico. His competitor, In this dubious race for filthy lucre, that is oil, H.L. Hunt had a father who fought alongside the Dixie secessionists in 1861. He was often dubbed the richest man in the world. The other members of this Texas oil troika, Clinton or Clint Murchison, like the other two, had a pension for employing Negro servants, a throwback to slavery, perhaps. Virtually every radical right wing movement in the United States. During the 1950s, was propped up by these Texas oilmen, including virulent anti-Semitism and the shenanigans of Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. And Jumping ahead by 19, you write that by 1963, the phone number of Hunt's son was. Found in the packet of Jack Ruby, assassin of the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy. Naturally, Hunt was briefed about the findings of the investigation into these foul crimes before Earl Warren himself, the titular head of the commission and chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Hunt's putrid spewing was broadcast on 500 radio stations at its heights, at its height, which aided his uh, his food sidelines, which tainted, was dumped in black communities. Even William F. Buckley, scion of yet another Texas oil fortune and patron saint of modern conservatism felt that Hunt gave capitalism a bad name. Not only did Murchison back McCarthy, he regarded him as a brother. Cullen was not just a conservative, but a donor to the leading Dixiecrat and ultra-conservative candidate for president in 1948, J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. And Hunt's uh, maunderings were often filtered through the proliferating Christian anti-communist networks. So, is there a history then of Texas oil fueling U.S. fascism? Is, is opposition to fossil fuel, especially, you know, fossil fuel from Texas, opposition to U.S. fascism?
2: I'm glad you raised that question, because as we speak an issue roiling relations between Mexico and the United States, but I detect the invisible hand of Texas in this escapade, is that... Washington is challenging Mexico's state control of its oil industry, which goes back to President Cardenas in the 1930s. Given the fact that we know that when you had the overthrow of the Mossadegh regime in Iran in 1953, that oil was at issue, we know that with regard to Venezuela, one of the issues that is a sticking point with regard to Venezuela and the United States is the fact that Venezuela has some of the largest oil reserves uh, in the world. And under the previous president Hugo Chavez, uh, there was more state control of that industry. And we also know, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, because he bears an eerie resemblance physically and otherwise to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who in relative terms, I would say is as reactionary as a man who gave his name to an epic, I'm speaking of McCarthyism uh, embodied in Senator Joseph McCarthy. And you mentioned Senator J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina who ran a campaign for president in 1948 on an explicit platform of racism, white supremacy, and won four or five states. He was then a dissident Democrat. He then defected to the Republican Party. He was in the vanguard in that respect because recall that in 1965, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, that in a sense is a Magna Carta for not only black voters, but voters from a language minority backgrounds as well, such as getting ballots in Spanish or Vietnamese, or Putonghua, the language of China, et cetera, that with that legislation, you saw a mass defection from the Democratic Party. Theretofore, the party uh, of the South uh, they defected mass to Richard Nixon's R- Republican Party uh, by 1968. And so that brings us, of course, to today, where now we may be on the verge of a unique form of U.S. fascism. We may get a glimpse of that as early as November 2022, assuming that the Republicans reclaimed the House and the Senate to go along with their stranglehold over the US Supreme Court. And we all know that sooner rather than later, Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump, will be announcing to run for president. And uh, it would be difficult, I'm afraid to say, to bet against him in November 2024. He's already pledged, and see the article recently in Axios, A-X-I-O-S, to engage in a massive purge of the civil servant workforce, what he would refer to as the deep state, not only the Justice Department and the State Department, but other federal agencies, the kind of fate that has befallen black Americans in terms of a la Breonna Taylor in Louisville having authorities burst (laughs) into your residence, uh, guns blazing with you lying dead in the aftermath or being executed because of a minor traffic violation. In the front page of the New York Times, July 25th, 2022, uh, there is an article about the so-called constitutional sheriffs who feel that the election of November 2020 was stolen. They're not just from Texas, but of course they have a stronghold in Texas. Uh, They also express this idea of them being the ultimate embodiment of the constitution in their county, which means that they are the law not necessarily the Congress in Washington. And so you see this rather strange odyssey of the United States uh, devolving from states' rights, which was the mantra of the 1960s when segregationist governors like George Wallace of Alabama said that the sovereign state of Alabama did not have to obey these pointed-headed bureaucrats in Washington, now you have county rights. <laughs> where the sheriffs, who carry guns, by the way, uh, unlike George Wallace, as far as we know, and already uh, have been visiting uh, polling booths uh, during elections, which can be very intimidating uh, to many voters. So uh, we are perhaps on the verge of a new dimension of U.S. reality and politics, and that is one of the reasons why I urge and encourage uh, your audience to not neglect what's going on in Texas, because to repeat, our nightmare today may be your nightmare tomorrow.
0: Gerald, I cannot thank you enough for, again, being on our show and we look forward to your next work. What is the next book you're going to be you're working on right now?
2: The city of Washington, D.C., that is to say, the people, as opposed to the, the high government in Capitol Hill and the White House. The title is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1918 to 1978.
0: And when do you think that's going to be released? Next year. All right. Well, then it's going to be six straight years that you'll be coming on our show because we'll definitely have you back on the show. Contact us whenever you have any work coming out. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Gerald. Thank you so much for showing as much support as you have had in the past for This Is Hell. I truly appreciate it.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: All right. Take care, Gerald. You know, the last question that we ask is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, uh, our guests may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate his response. And so we, uh, I didn't say that before the final question, but the one about fossil fuels fueling uh, fascism in the United States, uh, taxes fossil fuels especially, that was supposed to be the question from hell. Unfortunately, I'm distracted by the fact that I still have 35 freaking staples in my stomach, and they're being taken out at 4.30 today, a little bit after... This uh, 80 minutes of This Is Hell If you're listening on WNUR This beginning of This Is Hell And uh, yeah, I just can't get it out of my mind That I'm, I'm having this done without anesthesia So my apologies for not introducing the final question As the question from hell Staring into the abyss so you don't have to This is hell If what you just heard from Gerald on Texas and fascism If that conversation was in some way enlightening Or deprogrammed you from a previously hell belief or understanding Or made you feel like you actually learned something Or to realize that yes, this really is hell Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. and this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for a completely listener support of This Is Hell by visiting This Is Hell and clicking on support. But we need as many of you as possible to be signing up to our Patreon podcast. On last week's Patreon podcast, you should listen because... I marked my 26th anniversary of broadcasting on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, by recalling my entire history on the radio, how and why that history got interrupted, the events that led me to contacting NUR to see if there were any opportunities to be on air, and and, uh, what I was doing on the station when I first started back in 1996, how eventually This Is Hell came to be This Is Hell, and some of our achievements along the way since we began And up to this very day We also shared our October 11th, 2008 interview With author Thomas Frank One of our listeners' very favorite guests On his then-just-released book The Wrecking Crew How Conservatives Ruined Government Enriched Themselves and Beggared the Nation But you can only hear all of that As well as getting exclusive access To a secret code word That gets you a discount on all of our This is Hell merchandise And access to over two Hundred Patreon podcasts, all with new monologues by me, as well as access to interviews. that are not available anywhere else online. By subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live, again, Thursdays and it's podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash hell. It's now time for installment number three of Seb's Soapbox. No, it isn't number three. It's like nine. number nine. It's yeah, number I was going to say number number nine. Number yeah, nine. as as, as far
1: nine. as I as far as I'm counting, it's number
0: nine. Number nine. So we're making a Beatles reference, and I apologize for that. Our newest segment, where producer Sebastian Voper, a historian himself, gives us his take on history.
1: Sebastian, on it. <laughs> Sebs soapbox. So today I'm going to talk about whiteness, which is kind of a strange thing. Uh, Like many of the issues that I discuss on this segment, whiteness is something that, although it seems like it would have been around forever, is actually surprisingly recent. So instead of asking how are white people, the New York Times has has that covered for us. Again, we are not the media. Today, I want to ask why are white people. But Seb, are you not white yourself? Well, I guess I am at least white passing. I mean, I wouldn't have been quite white 150 years ago. Germans weren't quite considered that until some point later. Or rather, the categories at that point were just different. Uh, whiteness in the way that we understand it today is a fairly recent racial category. And the people who we think of as white today have not conventionally been thought of as white for as long as popular consensus would make you believe. And uh, the same is true for some categories of non-white people. Um, Also, the mutation in Homo sapiens sapiens, you know, the human animal uh, that creates whiteness as such, is itself also a lot younger than you'd think, because research shows that white people, as in us pasty friends with pale skin who get sunburned after two seconds, are basically just about 5,000 years old. Before that, every human was a person of color and or black, depending on how inclusively or exclusively you're using those terms. Um, And so the ancient Romans, for example would probably not entirely pass as white today, uh, but this is where things in terms of racial nonsense become interesting, um, because the ancient Romans also thought of Asian people as looking like us. If you look into the sources, they, that's what they say. Another reminder that globalization is much older than the current moment and that people in ancient times could indeed travel quite far, Just not as fast as we do today. But yeah, the ancient Romans encountered Asians and uh, were like friends, Romans, countrymen, over yonder hills and beyond the river. And then some, there's also people and, you know, they look like us. Doesn't that make your laurel spin? Uh, Just a bit of of ancient Roman humor there for you. Um, Even Italian explorer Marco Polo thought that the Chinese were essentially like us. Funny enough, the people of Asia only became categorized as non-white when white Europeans started colonization projects there, and the locals weren't happy with it. And, uh, yeah, it turns out if you want to subjugate and exploit a people, it's much easier to do when you decide they're fundamentally different and lesser. And whiteness in America essentially started out as a counterpoint to blackness. White people were the ones who were free, black people were the ones who were enslaved. And this, too, only happened to emerge after a while. I mentioned Bacon's Rebellion before, and uh, and that's usually seen as a turning point there because the local Virginia planter elites were incredibly scared of the mob. They started to favor using black African slave labor over white indentured servants. And this, again, is an oversimplification, obviously, Uh, but essentially indentured servants would, after a while, gain their freedom and claim their own pieces of land, and since they were a lot more of those guys than they were planter aristocrats, the elites got their knickers in a twist, and especially since the freed indentured servants started to work together with the freed and also still indentured African slaves, who initially also could gain their freedom because slavery hadn't been made into a racialized caste, that changed eventually because divide and conquer is the name of the game. Africans became permanent chattel slaves with no chance of getting gaining freedom for themselves or their children. In contrast, whites could never be slaves. And don't buy a word of any of those ding-dongs that say that the Irish were slaves because that's just simply not true. And uh, with whites being perpetually free and Africans being perpetually enslaved, they could no longer there could no longer be much of, uh, in in terms of cross-racial solidarity, and also, since racialized slaves can be treated like animals, the methods of uh, of oppression against them, that part of the population could be much, much harsher, making uh, slave uprisings much less likely than uprisings of disgruntled cross-racial coalitions of freed indentured servants. The crystallization of whiteness then has a lot to do with the slave trade, so thanks a lot, British Empire. This development also broadly coincides with the Scientific Revolution and the first zoological categorization of animals into phylums and so on. And because the people designing these various hierarchies of the animal kingdom were white dudes, they quickly applied the same categorizations to people and put themselves on top like the good little freaks that they were. So, all of that coalesces, especially in the Atlantic world, so the world that's connected by the trade through the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and before the 19th century starts, most of that trade revolved around African slaves in the triangle trade, and yes, this will be on the test. Speaking of the British, they and the Anglo-American offspring they spawned thought it, thought of themselves as the pinnacle of God's creation, literally. In the early 19th century, a thing called Anglo-Saxon supremacy emerged, which was kind of a proto-white supremacy, just a little more Anglicized. Pun intended. And it was nowhere stronger than in the US. See, Anglo Saxons, according to themselves, were just the best. Sources from the time talk about them, uh, themselves really, as the best of the best. They found that Europeans were the best in the world, and among Europeans, Germanic people were the best. But Germanic people on the continent had mixed themselves with lesser races like Slavs and Latin people. And only the Anglo-Saxons had really only mixed with other Germanic peoples, and were therefore the purest, most Germanic. Of course, this is all hogwash, but most racial supremacy is. The Anglo-Saxons, mixed with the Celts, and with the ancient Romans, and the French-speaking Normans that took over in 1066 with old Willie the Conqueror, who certainly had before done the hanky-panky with Latin, Celt, Frankish people... Just a reminder, pure races don't exist unless your last name is Habsburg, and let me tell you, in the words of Carlos Secundas, (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm sorry, it's a little ableist. (laughs) Uh, I should make fun of the poor guy, but seriously, pure races aren't a thing, never were, anyway. Also, since the British Isles were situated on Europe's west end, the Anglo-Saxon supremacists said that the best of the best of Europe always filtered westward, and when the British Isles weren't west enough any longer, they sailed across the ocean blue and founded America. And uh, then they kept going west because God put that country there, devoid of anything or anyone who counted to spread their vile scene on. And bada bing, bada boom, you have Manifest Destiny, which its inventors understood as a consciously Anglo-Saxon supremacist concept and or white supremacist. I mean, there is some overlap there. Um... At some point, the concepts of Anglo-Saxon and white started to merge. Initially, Anglo-Saxon Americans were understood as those of old stock who could trace their lineages back to the early colonies or even the heap of junk of the Mayflower and those jolly... Uh, no, not jolly, those glum sour pusses of the pilgrims. Against those people, most newcomers were measured and found, well, lacking... And that's where we come back to Germans, Irish, Italians, and so forth. None of those were traditionally seen as on the same level as the Anglo-Saxons. But over the course of the 19th century, things started to soften in the racial categories. Germans were among the first to gain whiteness, because, well, just look at us. Sure, to the pain of the descendants of the Sourpuss Pilgrims, my people loved their beer a bit too much as did the Irish, who were, to the even bigger pain of the sourpusses, uh, all Catholic, as were the Italians, who were also swarthy and not lily-white. But over time, those were melted down into various facets of whiteness. The Chinese, on the other hand, at this point, were no longer like us, So, so much so that the Chinese were the first racial group of immigrants that experienced some serious systemic racism. I mean, yes, I know, the, I mean, I'm i seeing the first group of immigrants. Obviously, black people experienced the worst and much earlier serious systemic racism, but the, the Chinese were like the first group of immigrants, people who came here voluntarily to experience that. Um, to the point that they got their own act of Congress in the Chinese Exclusion Act to stop the quote-unquote Asiatic hordes from storming the fair beaches and the fairer white women of California. And then in the early 20th century, the American courts decided that, no, even if Japanese aren't Chinese, there they also aren't white. Sorry, don't come. And then they also decided that although Indian people had culture, they too weren't white. Sorry, don't come. And then they made a big old law that slammed immigration from anywhere, but select places of Europe, select white places of Europe, shut. And at that point, and this shows us how weird whiteness is, Mexicans were by and large considered white. There was no differentiation between race and ethnicity, at at least not in in front of the law. Um, And then in the census of 1930, a new category was introduced that separated Mexicans and Mexican-Americans out into their own category. And well, since the law had just decided that only white people could immigrate to the U.S., the advocates of Mexican-Americans started a broad lobbying campaign by... 1936 the census bureau changed its tone and withdrew the separate mexican racial category so in the 1940 census mexicans were white again which doesn't mean that mexicans mexican americans latinos did not experience a lot of discrimination at the time it's just in front in in the in the eyes of the law they were white not in the eyes of the population look up the zoot suit riots if you want more on that topic but anyway and if that doesn't give you an idea of how arbitrary racial categories are, then I don't know what else to tell you. Like time, race is a social con- construct, after all. It really makes your head spin And uh, until you fall off your soapbox.
0: Yes, until you fall off your soapbox. And when can people hear the extended dance mix of Sub soapbox? Uh, this week?
1: The extended Eurodance trash mix, uh, let's say Thursday, let's say uh,
2: four. four?
0: 4 p.m. Chicago time on Thursday, and you can see that, hear that on our YouTube channel. This is how Radio 1996, a few footnotes that I would add just as far as it relates to the radio show to Sub Soapbox today. Uh, You should go back and listen to our Past interviews, I believe his first name is Gerald, Gerald Mann's book 1491 and how the uh, What the Americas were like before Columbus landed, Gerald, uh, we also Had uh, Andres Resmunde On the show years ago, R-E-S-M-U-N-D-E-Z I believe He had a National Book Award Nominated book about the enslavery Of the indigenous that people Often uh, neglect noticing in History books that happened post-Civil War But also pre-Civil War, also so uh, when it comes to the global slave trade and how it really was a 400 years of a global slave war you should check out our interview with Vincent Brown and his book Tackies revolt, and as far as, I don't know if you know about this or not, Sebastian, uh, Chicago's Lager Wars, which pitted German immigrants against Irish immigrants all over beer. What, so the you, beer riot? Yeah, it's the Lager Wars or beer That's riots. It's called the Lager, the Lager Beer Riot of 1955.
1: Uh, 1855. 1855.
0: And yeah. uh, I love the way in which, uh, I love the way. Uh, it was incredibly brutal. It was a very brutal war and what they did to the Irish and how they took the bridges along the Chicago River And they turned them on their turnstile so the people couldn't get on or off the bridge anymore. And the people who were trapped on there were shot dead by police. Sebastian, with all those happy footnotes, remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh,
1: This week's question from hell is the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? The consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? Uh, Steve C. says birth... I'm um, saying that that's a disqualified, that's not an action that you took, you had no no real agency in that. Here, this is how we do not hold you to the original sin. Mm. Uh, and Fabio L says, being born, which again, same thing. <laughs> mm, People are, are on a certain path there. Rayo says, as if I could run anymore. Good point. Mm. Shane M says, you'll love this. Well, Chipotle gave me the trots. Does that count? <laughs> God. Kelly H says, sex. It's always been sex. I just don't know which way to run anymore. <laughs> Benjamin C says, no putting the toilet seat down. <laughs> what? David Z says, eating Serbian pick- pick- pickled cabbage salad. I've been running all right. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's gone. Yeah, it's gone from birth to digestion. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, Quite yeah. a curve. Adam A says not taking up running sooner. <laughs> All right. Um, Walter B says joining Facebook to see posts like this. <laughs> yes. Uh, Marco G says not doing as told. And uh, Donald H says Relati- relationship issues. Although for once I'm walking instead of running. Oh, that's yeah, sweet. That's good for him. Mm. Aaron D says, "Being a ladies' man." <laughs> seems like another variant on the sex thing. Jesus. <laughs> Dan K says, "Breathing." Okay. All right. Okay. All right. And uh, how many more? How many more do you uh, want? let that's just one more. Okay. Craig P says, oh, "Looks like he got caught peeing in the showers, which way to the lobby?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. Wow. So that's what he's running away from. The consequences yeah. of which he's running away yeah. from. Uh, so, uh, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vopper for producing, as well as another edition of Seb's Soapbox. Uh, Sebastian, who are our upcoming guests this week here on This Is Hell? Do you have that in front of you, or you want me to read it?
1: Uh, you read it. I Sociologist
0: not. Raul Perez will be on next. He's going to discuss his new book, The Souls of White Jokes. Possibly the best title we've had for a book on the show in a very long time. The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy which blew my freaking mind, as most of our guest's writing does. Uh, we're also going to have later on this week's show uh, return of award-winning journalist Amanda Sperber, who wrote the new, new article at uh, The Baffler, Prelude to a Redeployment. Listeners for signs of the Americans in Kismayo, Somalia. If you are not aware, the Biden administration just sent 500 troops To Somalia. So.
1: Didn't Bridley Scott make a movie about that, how that was a bad idea? Yeah,
0: yeah, like 32 years ago? Yeah. Mm. Something like that. And of course, as always, we will have This Week in Rotten History from Rinaldo Magaldi and A Moment of Truth from Jeff Dorchin. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell.
2: My demon is on my butt. Uh. my demon talks to me of profanity
1: like a seller Uh and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride
2: thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com